We are back on track today in our study of 1 Corinthians. Uh, Last week, I decided that I would preach the Sunday morning sermon on Sunday night and the Sunday night morning on our Sunday uh, evening sermon on Sunday morning. And so we kind of got things mixed up, but we're going to start the new year off right and get things back on track today as we study 1 Corinthians. And I think the uh, subject of our sermon this morning is appropriate. We're starting a new year, and the new year is a time for us to reflect upon the last year and whether our service to God has been what it should be. We start off a new year making resolutions, and we always want this year to be better than the last. And as Christians, we we really want to reevaluate our lives and make a determination that as we go through this year that we will serve Christ more effectively and that our lives really will be a reflection of the character of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then also as a church body, we need to examine ourselves and look and see whether our church has grown in the last year. And when I'm speaking of church growth in this way, I'm talking about spiritual growth. And that's how we gauge whether we're actually a growing church, and that's whether we're growing spiritually every year. Uh, There are many parents that at the beginning of a year, they may put a measuring tape uh, on the door or on, a, on the doorpost or on a wall or something. And uh, they'll measure their child at the beginning of the year. And then at the end of the year, they measure again to see if that child has grown. So if you were to take a five-year-old child and you measured this child at the beginning of 2007, and then you measure him again at the beginning of this year, 2008, and you find that a five-year-old child hasn't grown then you know that there are serious problems. Children are supposed to grow. Healthy children grow. And the very same thing is true in our Christian lives. We ought to be growing. And if you can look back on the year of 2007 and you find that there is no spiritual growth in your life, then you need to seriously check up and see what is it that is stunning my spiritual growth and find out what it is and then do something about it. Well, this is what Paul faced at the church at Corinth. Uh, There were many... Uh, people who had not grown in the church. There was no spiritual growth. Uh, they were mired in immaturity. And so that's why Paul said to them in an, in an earlier part of the lesson or the letter that we studied before, he said, by now you ought to be teachers. But he said, you're still having to be taught yourself and you've not really grown. You're still spiritual babies. And so he called them carnal Christians. And that's what carnal Christians are. They're people who never grow in the spirit A few weeks ago, we even saw that this was a church where there was a man who was living in in terrible sexual sin with his mother-in-law, a terrible sin of immorality. And so Paul talks about their immortality or their immaturity and their immorality. And I think that if this had been the beginning of a new year, that Paul may very well be saying to this church in Corinth, let's get the sin out of the church. Let's get the things out of our life that are hindering our spiritual progress. And let's go on this year and make it a better year in our service for the Lord. And we're going to talk about this today. We're going to talk about sin in the church and some specific things. So if you'd stand with me, please, as we read God's Word. We're looking at 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 through 11. And we'll see here that Paul gives us a catalog of sins. He reminds these people of what they were saved from. And then he says that those who commit these sins will not be in heaven. They will be among heaven's missing persons. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, beginning with verse number 9. Know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Be not deceived, or he may say, make no mistake about this. 
neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor abusers of themselves with mankind, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners, shall inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But ye are washed, but ye are sanctified, but ye are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time we have to come together today. Lord, I just pray that you might open our hearts to your word. Uh, May we see if we have sin in our lives. May we examine ourselves and make sure that these things are not a part of the way that we live. Uh, Bless our our hearts today. Bless those that that are saved here today and speak to those that are lost. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Corinth was a very seriously mixed up church. This was a church that was really in some bad need of fixing. And we find here in the book of 1 Corinthians that Paul addresses the problems of the Corinthian church concerning three particular different areas. The church had a problem with immaturity. There was no spiritual growth among these people. There was a problem of immortality. A little bit later, we're going to study that, and we'll find out that the Corinthian people didn't really understand about the second coming of Christ. They didn't understand what would happen when Jesus comes back again. But in this particular section of the book, Paul is dealing with the problem of immorality. And so he deals with these three issues, immaturity, immortality, and immorality. And all of these things were problems in this church. And I think that If we were to substitute our churches today, the modern churches today, and place them into the salutation of this letter, this is a letter that very well could have been written to churches in 2008. Now, Paul is not at all surprised that he would find people in the world that are living in these sins that we've just read. He expected that. I mean, everywhere that he went into the Roman Empire, he found people that were involved in these kinds of things, and they needed to be saved from these very things that he's talking about. So as he went around uh, preaching the gospel in different places, he fully expected that he would find people committing these types of sins. But what he's shocked to find out is that there are people who claim to know Jesus Christ as the Savior, those who said they are the blood-bought saints of God, and these people are still practicing these very same sins that they did in their former life. And so he begins, verse number 9, with a question. He says, Don't you know that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? And so he says here that there are some There's going to be some missing persons in heaven because they have not repented of these sins. They have not gotten right with Christ. They have not put their faith in Jesus. Now, what he does not mean here is that these saved people will lose their salvation because they've gone back into some of these sins. But what he is saying, these kinds of things do not characterize the lives of Christians. And people who are involved in these kinds of things, they need to check up on their salvation. Now, I want us to see how that Paul rebukes these sins and how that he argues for a better position that we find in Christ. So we notice, first of all today, that what he does here is give us a picture of our past. It's a picture of our past. Paul's actually taking a snapshot of what our lives were like before we were saved. Now, some of you, as you read these different sins that we've just uh, uh, enumerated here in the book of 1 Corinthians, you may say, well, pastor, I've never been involved in those kinds of things. I've never committed these types of sins. My past is nothing at all like this. 
What Paul is not trying to do here is to give us a list of all the sins that could be committed. And neither is he saying that these particular ones are the ones that keep people out of heaven. But what he's saying here is that all sin is against a holy and righteous God. Every sin that we commit, whether we think that it's a big sin, like some of the things that are mentioned here, or whether we categorize them as little sins, all sin is against a holy God. And the Bible teaches us that the very best things that you do in your flesh, those are nothing but filthy rags in God's sight. The Bible says that all have sin and come short of the glory of God. And so, if you think, well, I didn't do these kinds of things. I've never committed these kinds of sins, and so I must be good, and I'm deserving of going to heaven. Then you really don't understand how wide the gap is between your best offerings that you can give to God and what God's holiness and righteousness is all about. And so that's why salvation could never be, it can never be by anything that you have done. There's only one reason that God accepts you, and that's because of what Christ has done on the cross. Christ must be our righteousness. But there are some people who commit these sins. They're they're prevalent in the world today. And unfortunately, folks, it's also true that there are people in the church who commit the very sins that Paul is talking about. So they say that they're saved, but they're involved in all these different kinds of immorality. So we're going to take just a minute in the first part of the sermon to examine examine these things that Paul is talking about, or these particular sins. And we notice, first of all, that there are sins here that he mentions that are sins against self, sins that you commit against yourself. And we may not fully understand the wickedness of the time that Paul lived in. Uh, we know that we're living in a wicked age, but Paul was really living in terrible times. Historians tell us that possibly 14 out of the first 15 Roman emperors were homosexuals. Nero was a homosexual. And he even had a a young man, a young boy, castrated in order to become one of his wives. And then when Nero died, he just passed that young boy along to others who came after. One of the most remarkable uh, pieces of history that really comes alive today is the city of Pompeii, Italy. Now, many of you may have been there. Some of you might have been there. Uh, I was there a few years ago, and I was amazed at how perfectly preserved that this ancient city of Pompeii was. In 79 AD, the volcano Mount Vesuvius erupted, and in just like a flash, almost like that, the entire city was covered under seven to eight feet of volcanic ash. And when that ash fell on those people, there were many of them that were caught doing the very things that they went about in their daily activities. And there was an amazing thing about the way that this happened, because when that ash covered them, it perfectly preserved the bodies in a cast or in a mold. Now, over time, uh, as that uh, volcanic ash hardened, uh, the bodies inside began to decay, and it left this perfect cavity where the body was. And so as the archaeologists dug down into this ash, they were able to discover exactly what the people were doing, often right at the very moment that that volcano erupted. Now, one of the things that they don't show people on the tours is the wickedness that was taking place in the city of Pompeii. When they dug down and they uncovered these these cavities where these people were, they filled up those cavities with plaster. And so what they have is an actual mold of what those people were doing at that very time. 
And what they discovered was that there were many evil practices that were going on, just terrible things that those people were doing right when that volcano erupted. Now, the amazing thing I think about this is that that was within 20 years of the time that Paul wrote 1 Corinthians. And so we have a a look, a, a preserved look, right into the history of the Roman Empire and the very things that Paul is talking about. And so when Paul begins this list or this category of sins, he's referring to those rampant sins that were going on in the city of Corinth right at that very time. Now we look at some of the words that he uses. And these things were in the past of these Corinthian Christians. Now, first of all, he says here, Be not deceived, neither fornicators shall inherit the kingdom of God. Fornication is a Bible word that covers the entire gambit of sexual sins. But what Paul is particularly talking about here is sexual sins that take place between unmarried people. I might have been terribly naive when I became a pastor, but I was very surprised at how many people that you have to deal with that are involved in these kinds of sins. We have people today living together without marriage. We have so many people that are living in that way. They're practicing free sex that the church has to deal with this. I mean, there are people that come and they want to become members of the church, and you find out that they're involved in these kinds of sins. And I've told you before, I will not baptize anyone, and I will not bring a person into the church who will not confess that sin and is unwilling to give up that sin. They've got to stop doing it. Now, what Paul is trying to do here is to rid this church of immorality. But what we find going on in in churches today is that pastors and churches are actually filling up the church with people that are involved in these kinds of things. I believe that the Bible teaches us that salvation produces a change in people. And when a person is unwilling to give up these kinds of sins, then I have very serious doubts about whether that person is really saved. Paul says, these are not things that you ought to be doing. People who do these things will not be in the kingdom of God. But we face it every day in the church. Television and movies glamorize this. They act like it's perfectly normal. I mean, when you watch television, I mean, when was the last time that you saw a fully functional family on television? You don't see it anymore, do you? Ozzie and Harriet are gone. Father knows best. That's a thing of the past. Now, today, we have all these things on television and all the pornography that's going on. Uh, Pornography is at an epidemic level in the United States. They even tell us that there are more pornographic outlets than there are McDonald's restaurants in the United States. Pornography is a multi-billion dollar a year industry. And do you know that there are even Christian people who consider to get into that? They get into it on the internet. They indulge in this. And there are even Christian people that are making money off of pornography. Well, did you know this? That the Bible does not teach against sex. The Bible doesn't teach against it. Sex is is a wonderful thing when it's within the framework of marriage. But when it goes outside of that... It's always demeaning, and it will always turn out harmful to those who are involved in it. Well, the next thing that Paul talks about here is idolatry. He says, idolaters will not inherit the kingdom of God. Well, most of us think, well, I've never been involved with that sin. I'm certainly not an idolater. And we think of idolaters as people that bow down and and worship images or idols. I've never known a Christian who has an image in their house or an idol that they bow down to. 
or, or one in their backyard that they go out and worship. I don't know any Christians like that. And so we think, well, we're not idolaters. We don't do that. But you'll notice here that Paul mentions in verse number 10, he says, covetousness. And in Colossians 3 verse 5, he says, covetousness, which is as idolatry. Now, do you know what that means? It means that there are a lot of people who don't bow down and worship idols. They don't bow down before statues. But there are so many people that bow down and worship the almighty dollar. You know what happens when you're a type of person who, you are, who is striving to get ahead of everybody else and you make that the goal of your life? You're going to stay ahead of all of your neighbors? That can turn into idolatry. Idolatry is when you look for meaning in your life from any other source than God. And so if you have it in your mind that what I'm living for, I've got to drive a BMW. That's my goal in life. I've got to get there. I, I have to own my own home. I, I have to have that. I, I, I must have recreation. I, I must have a vacation. And you make those things the goal of your life, that becomes idolatry to a Christian. When anything replaces God in your life that becomes the goal, and you want that more than you want to serve Christ, that thing becomes an idol to you. I might add this as well. There are many Christians that will pick up their newspapers in the morning and they'll read their horoscopes. And people ask, you know, what's your sign? What sign are you under? And we try to get our directions from other sources than God. That is also idolatry. People go to fortune tellers. They go to psychics. They're looking for direction. President Reagan even got involved in that. That is not Christian. Now, if anybody asks you, what's your sign... What you ought to say is, my sign is the sign of the cross. Now, that's a much better testimony for you. So these things are idolatry. It's a sin against self. Then also here, he speaks about adultery, another sin against self. Adultery is a sexual sin that occurs between married people. Now, today, we live in the, the day or the age of the affair. People are having affairs, And it's as if we use that term, it puts a little bit better face on it if we say they're having an affair. Well, if somebody says to you, is that person having an affair? And they are, I encourage you to say, no, they're committing adultery. Get rid of the affair. They're committing adultery. That's what the Bible calls it. And adultery is a very heinous sin. It upsets God's order of society. The scripture says, righteousness exalteth a nation. And adultery is a sin that perverts families... And it prevents righteousness from being passed on from generation to generation. It's a sin against God. A nation that tolerates adultery is a nation that is on a fast track to destruction. You know, we used to have laws against it. Actually, laws on the books about adultery. I think that maybe in some states they still do, over there, although they're not enforced. And we used to make it terribly difficult for a person to get a divorce. But now, it's everywhere. It happens in the church, among the people of God... They're involved in these same kinds of sins. The next thing he mentions here is the word effeminate. And that's a word that comes from a word that means soft, like a person that wears soft clothing. What it actually has reference to is that men who dress in soft or effeminate clothing. I'm not going to make any comment about pink shirts today, men, but uh, soft or effeminate clothing. But that's what we have today, don't we? cross-dressers, transvestites. Men are not to wear women's clothing, and women are not to wear men's clothing. 
There's supposed to be a difference between men and women. Now, very closely tied to that is the next phrase that he uses, nor abusers of themselves with mankind. There's one word that we use to describe that. It's the phrase, or the Bible uses really, that describes that whole phrase, abusers of themselves with mankind. It's the word sodomite. Now, we use the word homosexual. The Bible calls them sodomites. Now, what that relates to, of course, is the wickedness of Sodom and Gomorrah. Most of you know the story about Sodom. Uh, Abraham's nephew Lot uh, went down to live in Sodom, and that was a place that was rife with homosexuality. And so God said that he was going to destroy the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. So he sent two angels down there to retrieve Lot, to bring him out of the city, before God rained down fire and brimstone upon it. Well, when those two angels went into Lot's house, there were men in the city who called out to Lot and said, bring those two men out. Now, they didn't know that they were angels, but these were the angels of God appearing as men. And they said, bring those two men out that we might know them. And what they wanted to do was to commit a homosexual act upon those two angels. Now, God would not tolerate that. And so God destroyed the city of Sodom. Now, I know there's many people who say, well, that's the Old Testament. The New Testament doesn't talk about that. It doesn't have that kind of attitude with it. Jesus is okay with homosexuals. Don't you count on that. The same God of the Old Testament is the same God that we find in the New Testament. And when Paul writes about this, he writes about it in unmistakable terms. Condemnation in both Romans and 1 Corinthians for this terrible sin. And yet, you know, we have churches today that struggle with it. Churches who have gay clergy and perform same-sex marriages. Every program that you watch on TV today, it has to have a gay person on it. Almost every, almost every program that you watch. And you know, it's even gotten so bad that they even take children on these programs and they show homo, homosexual tendencies in their schools. And they play this thing up as if this is the natural and the normal thing to do. Well, people say, well, God made them that way. Uh, God did that. They were born with that. I don't know all the answers to that, but I can tell you this. God does not make sinners. Man sins willfully. Man sins with purpose. And a man is a sinner because that's what he chooses to do. I also know there's a difference between homosexual tendencies and homosexual practice. And I know that Paul is talking about the past here. And he says in verse number 11, And such were some of you. And so I know that they're no longer that way. I know that God can save homosexuals out of that lifestyle because he did it right here with the people in Corinth. And then I also know the scriptures teach there won't be any homosexuals in heaven. They'll be missing from heaven because the scripture says they will not inherit the kingdom of God. You see, you choose to practice sin. There are some people who are alcoholics. They have alcoholic tendencies. But an alcoholic chooses to take a drink, doesn't he? That's his choice to do that. And it's the same with a homosexual who chooses to practice the lifestyle. So don't let anybody tell you that homosexuality is not a sin. God can save you from that sin, just like he saves from all other sins. I don't think that we ever do anybody a favor by condoning them in their sin, because the Bible says these people will be missing from heaven. So what we need to do is to warn them about it, not condone people in their sins. Then there's one other sin that he mentions here that's against self. It's in the next section, but it's the sin of drunkenness. And I preached... uh, 
a whole message about uh, drinking alcohol not long ago, so I'm not going to go into that again. But Christians, you ought to stay away from alcohol. Alcohol is the number one drug problem in the United States. And while we spend millions upon millions of dollars fighting the, the cigarette trade, we ought to be just as vigorous as fighting alcohol, at fighting that. Now, the problem here in Corinth, Paul says, these are, or there's a problem there, and Paul says, these are things that you used to do. But then there's another category of sins here, and we have the category of sins that are against self, but there are also sins that are against others. Now, in verse number 10, he mentions thieves. He talks about the covetous, and he speaks about extortioners. And I don't think there's anybody here today that you'd stand up and say, well, those things aren't sin. We're all convinced those things are sin. We're not going to argue about this. Thieves, extortioners, covetous people, that's a sin. We agree with it. We agree that it is. But it's still sin that we see taking place in churches. I've seen thievery in churches. I've seen people that join the church and they say they're Christians and they get into the church in order that they might be able to make a fast buck. They get people involved in schemes in the church. I'm going to tell you something. You watch out for anybody, even in your church, if they try to hook you up with something that's going to make a fast dollar. And you ought to watch out for anybody who's constantly, over and over again, wanting to borrow money. Because you're going to get stuck sometime or another. It's going to happen to you. So people get into churches for thievery. But then there's another interesting thing that I might add to this. Paul does not say robbery in this verse. He says thievery, but he doesn't say robbery. Now, if he said robbery... I would have a perfect time to talk to you about tithing. But I don't know about that. Would I, should I talk about tithing today? Isn't it funny that when God talks about people that don't tithe, he doesn't use the word thievery. He uses the word robbery. A thief is somebody who comes and steals from you when you're not looking. He hides out to steal from you. But a robber is someone who comes and takes things right in plain daylight. So isn't that something? When when God talks about the tithe, he says, wherein have you robbed me? And he follows it up with, you have robbed me in tithes and offerings. I don't think that a saved person wants to rob God, do they? Saved people don't rob God. Now, could Paul say to this congregation today, and such were some of you, some of you were robbers, Well, if you're still doing it, you weren't robbers. You are still a robber. You're still involved in the sin. Then the second thing that he says here is the word revilers. And that's a word that means using abusive language. It means slander. So you say, well, pastor, I don't do these things that you're talking about here. I'm not a fornicator. I'm not an adulterer. Certainly, I'm not a homosexual. But you will talk bad about somebody. You'll gossip and you'll slander other people. Isn't it interesting that God puts that sin right in the same passage of Scripture where he mentions these other things? How about this as a Christian this year? What about this New Year's resolution? I resolve that I am not going to talk bad of other people. So do you see what Paul is saying here? Most of the things that Paul says here and what I've told you this morning, these things are not politically correct. Somebody may go out today and they'll say, well, Pastor Smith, he's awful narrow-minded. He's a bigot. He's a hate monger. And that's what he's preaching up there, hate mongering. You know what I call it? I call it preaching against sin. That's what the Bible says that it is. People are going to be missing from heaven and I don't want them to be. And so that's why I'm going to preach against sin. 
And that's why we'll continue to do it in Berean Baptist Church. And that's why I want to pastor people who are used to be Christians, or used to be sinners, rather, used to be involved in some of these things, but now you're no longer involved in them any longer. Some of you are used to be Christians, you're not right now, I think. <laughs> you're back into some of these sins, perhaps. Well, that's not what I want to pastor. I want to pastor a church where people used to do these kinds of things. Maybe, maybe they had them in the past, but they're no longer doing them today. Well, now Paul goes on to a, the next wonderful part here, because he comes to one of the greatest verses in the Bible, and he speaks here about, secondly, the power of the gospel. Now, he's talked to us about the picture of the past, you, but you don't have to live in the past. You've been saved out of that. You've been changed. And the only thing that can change you is the gospel of Jesus Christ. You're a different person after you get saved. You remember I told you about Augustine? Uh, Augustine was involved in, in some of the very sins that we're talking about here. He was involved with prostitution, but then God saved him. You remember that time he's walking down the street and a prostitute called out to him and said, Augustine, it is I. And Augustine said, yes, but it is no longer I. And what he meant was he had been saved out of that sinful lifestyle. So what makes you different? What makes you different now from what you were before? You've got a new relationship. You've fallen in love with somebody. And that person is the Lord Jesus Christ. And when you fall in love with someone, what do you want to do? You want to please the person that you're in love with. You might remember that I told you once about uh, some college boys that were in a dorm room. And you know how college boys are. They're usually pretty dirty and nasty. They never clean things up and things are usually smelly in a dorm room. Well, these, uh, these college boys, they asked the dean one time. They said, we'd like to keep the school mascot in our room. Well, the school mascot was a goat. And so the dean said, well, you can't keep a goat in your room. What would, he do about the, what would you do about the smell? And they said, well, I guess he'll just have to get used to it. See, when you're saved, you'll get it in a minute. When you're saved, folks, you don't like the smell of sin. You want to get away from that. And Jesus comes to clean you up from it. Now, notice what he says in verse 11 then. He says, and such were some of you, but ye are washed. That's the first thing that happens when you get saved. You get washed. Now, he's not talking about baptism here. I mean, baptism never washed anyone's sins away. Water can't wash away sin. But what he's talking about here is being washed in the blood of the Lamb. Have you been to Jesus for the cleansing power? Are you washed in the blood of the Lamb? And that's what he's talking about. Well, you don't hear much preaching about the blood anymore. Most churches have completely abandoned speaking about the blood in salvation. But if you have no blood in salvation, you have a powerless gospel. The gospel means good news. And it's the blood of the Lamb that washes sinners clean. And so Jesus comes and he cleans you up and he gives you his perfect righteousness. Now, back in the beginning of the message, I said, your righteousness is as filthy rags. And so if you're trying to clean yourself up with those filthy rags of your righteousness, you're just going to get dirtier. You've got to have the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And that's what Christ does. He comes and he gives us his perfect righteousness, the righteousness that he earned by living a perfect life in this world. And so this is why Paul says, you are washed in the blood of the Lamb. You've been given Christ's righteousness. And he wrote in Titus, not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Ghost. 
Then he also says here that you are sanctified. And what that means is that God has set you apart for a special purpose. You see, God has a plan for your life. God has a design for your life. And when you're living according to God's plan and you're doing God's will in your life, that's when you're sanctified. I've explained it before. You're sitting on these chairs today. And when these chairs are being used for their intended purpose, they are being sanctified. Tomorrow, nobody's going to be sitting in the chairs. They won't be sanctified any longer. And this is the way it is with a Christian. When you trust Jesus Christ, you are sanctified. You're set apart for his use. And so when you yield your health, uh, self to the Holy Spirit, and when he uses you, you're sanctified. And so Paul's telling these people, you can't live in the flesh any longer. You can't do the things that you used to do anymore. Because God has a purpose for you. And if you're not living in God's will, and you're still continuing in the things of the flesh, you're not being used for God's purpose. But God has sanctified you. That's why he called them carnal Christians. Carnal Christians are not being used for God's intended purpose. Then the third thing he says here, he says, you are justified. So you're washed, you're sanctified, you're justified. Justification or justified, that's a legal term. And what it means is that once you were under the just penalty of God's wrath for your sin, you were on your way to hell. You couldn't serve God because you're under that penalty of sin. But then Christ came. And through the merits of Christ's blood on the cross of Calvary, and through the blood that's applied to your heart through your faith in Him, God has declared you righteous. And what He does is He frees you from the penalty of sin. So now, when God sees you, He no longer sees you. He sees Christ in you. He no longer sees a guilty sinner. He sees the perfection of Christ. And so Christ has given you everything you need. He's given you perfect righteousness. And on the account of that, you're accepted with God. You know, lots of people today talk about how they accepted Christ. I'm so glad that God accepted me. And he accepted me on the basis of Jesus' blood. And I received Christ as the free gift of God. So when you come to Christ and you trust him, you recognize that you're a sinner. You can't save yourself. And only through Christ can you be washed sanctified and justified from all of your sins. Well, that brings us to the next part. We have the picture of what we were in the past. We've been saved by the power of the gospel. And so what do we have now? We have a new position in Christ. We've been given a new position in Christ. Now, how do you get from where you were to where you are right now? Verse 11 tells us, you are justified how? In the name of the Lord Jesus. So our new position comes in the name of Jesus. Do you, re- do you realize how powerful his name is? In Romans ten thirteen it says, For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Oh, you run across people all the time that say, Oh, we believe in the good Lord up there. We believe in the man upstairs. The good Lord's taken care of me. But what they haven't done, they haven't called Jesus Lord. They haven't called upon the power of his name, and Jesus has become the Lord of their lives. Do you remember that's what Thomas said? At first he doubted, but then he saw the resurrected Christ, and he said, my Lord and my God. Now, when you've called upon the name of the Lord, and you recognize now that he is the Lord of your life, That's when you stop all the foolishness of these former sins that you lived in. And that's when you resolve that you're going to walk with Christ. You're going to work for him. You're going to live for him. 
And that's the very thing that takes you out of immaturity and out of immorality. It's when you have made Jesus truly the Lord of your life. But Paul not only says the name of Jesus, but he also says, by the Spirit of God. I want you to keep your listening sheet open. Don't close them yet because I'm going to have you write something down in just a moment. By the Spirit of God. Now you probably noticed that we don't see Jesus physically. We don't have a physical manifestation of Jesus. We know that he lived. We know that he died. We know he promised to be with us. But physically, we don't see Jesus. So how do we know he's here? How do we know that he lives? This is the answer. By the Spirit of God. We know him by the Spirit of God. Because that Spirit comes to live in us. Jesus spoke of the Spirit in John 14. He said, For he dwelleth with you and shall be in you. Jesus does his work in us through the Holy Spirit. Well, there's a very similar passage to the one that we're reading today. I made reference to part of it just a moment ago. I want you to turn your Bibles, if you would please, to the book of Titus. And we're going to look at a scripture that's very closely related to the things that we've just read. And in this scripture, Paul gives us the whole panorama of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. It's in Titus chapter 3, and this is how God, all three parts of the Godhead, work in us to change us. God is right now working in us to change us from what we were before. He writes in chapter 3, beginning with verse number 3. For we ourselves... Also, we're sometimes foolish. And the word sometimes means that we used to be. For we ourselves were also, or also were sometimes foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving divers' lust and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful, and hating one another. And doesn't that sound like 1 Corinthians? Here's what you were before. You were in these sins. Such were some of you. Verse 4. But after that, the kindness... And love of God our Savior toward man appeared. Now there's the first part of the Godhead. There's God the Father sends Christ into the world to save us. And how does he do it? Verse number 5. Not by works of righteousness which we have done. But according to his mercy he saved us. By the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Ghost. And so there we have the Holy Spirit making the work of Christ effectual in us. Verse 6. Which he shed on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior. And that means on the behalf of Christ, because of Christ's blood and righteousness, that being justified by His grace, we should be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. So do you see where you are in Christ? Why would you ever want to live any other kind of life? Why would you want to go back to the old life, to the old sins, when you see your true position in Jesus? Now I want you to... Remember, two very important things as I close the message today. First of all, if you have committed any of the sins that we've mentioned today, any of the sins in this list, that does not mean that there is no hope for you. But on the contrary, this means there is much hope for you. There is abundant hope because just as these Corinthians were saved out of these sins, so can you be saved out of them. No one has ever committed a sin that the blood of Jesus can't wash away. And so if you're lost... There is hope for you. You just need to trust Jesus. And you trust him to wash you, sanctify you, and justify you from all of your sins. Then the second thing is if you are a Christian, Paul is not saying here that if you've gone back to those sins and you're living in those sins right now, 
that that means that you've lost your salvation. You could never lose your position in Christ. But this is true. In order for you to have assurance of your salvation, the general direction of your life cannot be one of sin. And so if you're a person who claims to be a Christian and you're living in one of these sins right now and the Holy Spirit is not speaking to you and the Holy Spirit is not actively drawing you out of this sin, then you have no reason to believe that you're saved. You see, I don't want anyone here in this room today to be missing in heaven. I don't want you to be one of heaven's missing persons. Those who commit these sins, he says, will not inherit the kingdom of God. And so in the year 2008, I pray that you'll resolve to right whatever sin is in your life. If you're a saved person, that you'll get rid of these sins, you'll repent, you'll walk with God. And if you've never trusted Christ, I hope that you'll do that today. You could never do anything better in the first Sunday of 2008 than to trust Jesus Christ as your personal Savior. Now we come to the last thing that I want you to write on your listening sheet. Just pick a blank space there and just write this for yourself. Will I be missing in heaven? How are you going to answer that question? Will I be missing in heaven? You don't have to be. Because the Bible teaches you can be washed, you can be sanctified and justified in the blood of Jesus Christ. You don't have to be among heaven's missing persons. Would you pray with me, please? Heavenly Father, as we come to you now, we know, Lord, that there are sins that are in our lives. And maybe we haven't touched on a particular sin that someone is committing today, maybe their sin is not on this list. But as I've stated in the message, Paul is not intending to give us a full list of all sins that can be committed, but anything that draws us away from service to you, anything that hinders our spirituality, that is a sin that must be given up in order for us to be used for your intended purpose. I pray, Lord, that you might speak to some heart today, some obstinate Christian who for some reason or another has decided, well, I'm not going to serve God. I'm not going to do what God wants. I like the sin that I'm in. I'm going to stay there. Lord, speak to their heart and draw them out of that. Convict them of the sin. And then for a lost person here today, help them to understand that there is hope in Jesus Christ. Christ saves from all sin. And we just pray, Lord, that someone here today may put their faith and trust in you. Bless in this time of invitation. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please stand as we sing. I hear the Savior say, Thy strength indeed is small. 